in the gang. Bobby in the gang. Thanks, brother. How is everybody this morning? Freezing cold? Step in the shadow? It's like the Arctic. Step out of the shadow? It's like kind of warm. Um, it's like a Scottish summer morning, actually, very much. And talking to Scotland yesterday, uh, Ronna and myself and our son Ethan and some other folks went to a Scottish festival in Long Beach at the Queen Mary, which was right, uh, really bizarre. I had these like moments of complete nostalgia and like feeling like I was home, and then there'd be ZZ Top blasting out of the pizza like booth. Um, there was no haggis to be found. The weirdest thing was to see so many people of different cultures and races wearing kilts. It was like, with American accents. It was like the most kind of, ming it was like a perfect picture of the church, you know? What we have in common is Christ or a kilt, but we're all different tongues, nations, cultures, right? But it was a really fun time, and I did get a little, you know, teary-eyed a couple of times to think, you know, miss my family. But you're my family now. So I'm good, I'm home. Um, uh, Friday night, talking to family, Rona and I were invited over to a friend's house to watch a movie. Um, they'd done like three Fridays in a row watching the extended version of Lord of the Rings, uh, the, one through three. So we watched the last one, uh, Return of the King. And uh, it's based on a war, really, this war between two opposing forces. One is the, the evil, dark force of Mordor against what are called the free peoples of Middle-earth. So all the elves and the dwarves and the humans, uh, most of them anyway. Uh, and it's a, it's a fierce battle between these two kingdoms, and it made even more fierce because the gentleman to whose home we were invited has transformed his room into this theater with, he's got a, a well, how big is, can't be that long, yeah, a 10 foot projector screen and uh, 12 speakers, including the biggest subwoofer that I've ever seen in my life. I was sitting on this elevated couch over a wooden platform to see over the other people, and that whole thing was like vibrating, you know? I had internal organs I didn't know existed, identifying themselves to me by vibration. I'm like, that's where my spleen is, okay. Um, and ironically, I mean, this wasn't intentional, it turns out that the message this morning is about two kingdoms. Two kingdoms. Uh, the first one is what the Bible calls a kingdom of this world. Um, and it's a, that's a kingdom of control and a kingdom of sight. And the other is a kingdom of humility and a kingdom of faith. It's what the Bible calls the kingdom of God. One keeps us captive and leads us ultimately to all kinds of death, separation from others and ultimately our own soul. The other sets us free, gives us life, a vibrant, abundant life. You know, in the, in the movie, Lord of the Rings, it's pretty clear who the bad guys are. It's the orcs, the guys with, you know, horns sticking out of their heads and just, just getting, I don't want to put it on the screen because it might startle some children. And it's pretty clear who the, the good guys are. It's the elves, they're all dressed in white and radiant. And the music changes as well, you know. It's like, bad guys. Good guys. Um, and it's kind of like... It, the kingdom of the world is, is pretty obvious in many ways because we see it every day. But in other ways, it's not that obvious because it's like the water we swim in. We just live in this culture. Uh, every time we turn on the television, open the newspaper, we can get a glimpse of it. Every time we go to work. Actually, what it's all about kind of receives the most attention in the world as well. And I think we often crave to be part of this. It brings a significance in this world to be part, to be perhaps a king of the kingdom, to be royalty. 
And the first is definitely a kingdom of the world, earthly power. It's, it's the way we get things done, the strong approach. Uh, but it uses other people and it exploits other people. It's actually getting ahead in that kingdom means that you build yourself upon the shoulders and backs of other people and it damages them. Damage, damages them. Um, so it's a powerful kingdom. It's powerful in this world. But Jesus said about his kingdom, the kingdom of God, what shall I compare the kingdom of God to? It's like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour. So I always wonder why he said 60 pounds so specifically. Exactly 60 pounds. Until it worked all through the dough. This is a picture of like a subtle thing. So the kingdom of the world is quite exploitative. It's quite forceful. It's quite powerful. It gets its own way. And this other kingdom of God is subtle. It does not draw attention to itself. It quietly and persistently works in the midst of society. And we sometimes see it, see glimpses of it, sometimes in the most unlikely of people. So this passage today in Acts, as we go through, it gives a clear demonstration, I think, of these two kingdoms. And it calls us to choose uh, to remain fixated upon or enmeshed in one of them or to seek to be free from it and enter into the other. This is real life. We only get one and the time is short. There is no time to waste messing around with lesser ways to be human than what we are called to. So I'm gonna read this passage. It's in Acts 12, if you have a Bible. It will be on the screen also. The big Bible on the wall. Which remember, this stuff's good because Peter saw you know, a PowerPoint presentation forever redeeming technology for us. Acts 12, starting at verse one, I'm gonna go through to verse 25. Make yourselves comfortable. Everyone comfortable? Okay, is it warm enough in here? Okay, it's all about you guys. I wanna make sure you're comfortable. It was about that time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. And when he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread, the Passover. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals, and Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. And Peter came to himself and said, now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant named Rhoda came to the door. 
When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, it must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the brothers, the other brothers and sisters about this, he said, and then he left for another place. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. He had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They now joined together and sought an audience with him. After securing the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, this is the voice of a God, not of a man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. Right? But the word of God continued to spread and flourish. When Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. Two kingdoms, two kings. First, we're going to look at the first, the first kingdom, this kingdom of the world. King Herod is a representative of this, of this world. He shows us what this world is all about, and it's ultimately it's futility. Luke's description says it all. It's very clear. He says, here is a king, Herod, wearing his robes, sat on his throne. How much more kingly could you get than that? King Herod, first verse says, King Herod, and later Herod, wearing his robes, sat on his throne. So Herod, it's kind of confusing in the Bible because there are six Herods. It's like reading, a, has anyone ever tried to read a Russian novel like Tolstoy or Dostoevsky or something? There's this thing in Russia that there's so many characters and their names are like this long, even in English, and then, even worse, often characters have two different names. <laughs> and so you, it's really hard to keep track of who on earth you're talking about. I've tried to read uh, Crime and Punishment so many times, you know, and I just go, oh, these stupid names. I just need to, like, I just, I, I just have a picture in my mind. I don't I pronounce it. It's just like, oh, yeah, the D guy, whatever, um, or the A guy. He's the same as the D guy. But six Herods in the Bible. Uh, Herod the Great, Christmas story, okay? Jesus was born. Babies were killed. Herod Archelaus, Joseph uh, went to Nazareth instead of Bethlehem because of him. Herod Antipas killed John the Baptist. Jesus said about Herod Antipas, that old fox. Not a good term to be called. Herod Philip, who ruled an area northeast of Galilee. Herod Agrippa I, eaten by worms. And then Herod Agrippa II, who we're gonna appear later on in Acts, the second guy, Herod Agrippa II. Uh, trial of Paul in Caesarea. So they were, they were a family. This is a dynasty. The Herods are like in control of Judea and these areas. Uh, they're used to power. They're used to getting what they want. And they were ruthless. Uh, in fact, a couple of them even are known to kill their own family members. Killed wives, killed children. So here, first, the king, he's a king, he knows he's a king, his father was a king, his father's father was a king, he has king of the world <laughs> written in his soul. 
in his jeans. Did he have jeans then? <laughs> so second, no, he's actually wearing his robes, not jeans. Denim robes. Um, it's so clear. Luke says, a King Herod, right? He was wearing his robes. Why would he just specify that if not to say, he looks like a king. He's wearing the clothes of a king. Clothes are very important in that day. The priests wore certain clothes. The kings wore certain clothes. It, like clergy sometimes in the Roman Catholic Church, you can tell the person's status by the color of the clothes that they wear. And he was a king, obviously, and he sat on a throne. What is a throne apart from maybe some euphemism for a toilet? That's not what he was sitting on. King Herod sat on his throne one day. Uh, it's, it's a kingly place. It's a seat. Even it talk about God. God is sitting on his throne. It says Jesus at the right hand of the Father on the throne. Place of privilege and power. So Luke's just very clearly saying, here is an earthly king. This is the king. Um, so through this man, this example of kingliness of the world, Luke shows us what this kingdom is all about. And here's what it is. It's a matter of power. It's about power. It's about getting on in the world and advancement through power. And it's about control. It's about controlling the environment, controlling those around you. Uh, and it's about sight, what you see. You understand what you need to do by what you see, what you understand, and then you make it happen. Herod has not been in the story up to this point. He's been silent up to this point. No mention of him. The very first mention of him here is that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church. So Herod steps into the story First act, arrest some people who belong to the church. Secondly, he has James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. It's interesting. It's exactly the same escalation that happened earlier with the Jewish authorities in a very local way. It says that they arrested the apostles and put them in public jail because they were preaching in Jerusalem about Jesus being the Messiah. So they arrested them. But then they let them go again after a bit of a flogging. But then later they see Stephen. They all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, began to stone him. It's the same escalation. It's like testing the waters. See what the public opinion is. See what people are thinking about these people. Oh, okay, they kind of liked it when I arrested them. I'm going to kill him. Okay, I'm going to arrest Peter. Why this sudden attention from, from a king? Well, Melody Anderson last week preached, and man, she blessed me and made me cry. <laughs> She's always a good sign, you know? It's like when some of that good stuff God's doing on the inside leaks out through your eyes, right? It's good. And um, she, she brought the text that says there were, the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. They have a name now, a name which talks of the one that they follow. They're called Christians. They're a distinctive group. Initially, they were just part of Judaism, part of the Jewish faith. They were like a little sect, not too threatening, enough for the religious leaders to be concerned about it, but not so much for a national sense. But now they've become a distinctive group. They're the Christians, and they're spreading like a plague. <laughs> they had gone from being a local threat to a regional one. And what was their most distinctive feature? This is what the threat was. It's that Jesus is king. Jesus is king. Jesus is Lord. Not Caesar, not Herod. That is a threat. They are now a direct threat to the powers of this world, which thrive off structures and systems that are supported by the exploitation and dehumanization of people who God loves and longs to set free, and specifically a threat to Herod, because who does Herod believe himself to be? The king of the Jews. I am the king. These people are a threat. 
control. He's trying to control things. This is the way of the world. What does he do to his guards? His poor guards. You know? He cross-examines them and orders that they be executed. Ruthless. I mean, you don't think a miraculous thing has happened, right? These guards must have been somehow in alliance with this group. Maybe they're also Christians. Off with their heads. That's the only response. That is the way of the world. This is a threat. I must rid myself of it. People of Tyre and Sidon control. It says they depended on the king's country for their food supply. Imagine depending on someone like that for your supply of food. Control. Using that which they needed to gain their allegiance, loyalty, control. But they don't love you, do they? They maybe hate you, but you have power over them. And then sight. It's a kingdom of control. It's a kingdom of sight. As opposed to faith, which we're going to get to. It says, when he, Herod, saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. So he saw, this is, this is good for me. These people are favoring me now. So he continued to, to press in on taking control and removing the threat. So what are the consequences of this? A life lived according to control and according to sight. What does that lead to? Well, Herod shows us. First, it's captivity. It's amazing that in a passage, which is all about someone being freed from prison, the other character in the story who seems to be so free is actually the captive one. He is captive to his need to control every aspect of lives around him and his own in order to protect his power. He is not a free man. He needs to protect his reputation with the Romans because they could take him out of power easily. And he needs to protect his reputation with the people or at least control them through fear in this world of competition. What a, does that sound exhausting to you? That was the kind of way... Every single Scotland is full of all these stories of people who were trying to keep hold of power. And I, I, got, I try to read Scottish history so many times, but there's so many kings who last a very short time before they are murdered, usually by a relative. Uh, but they are captive. They are captive in this world system of getting things done that just draws them deeper and deeper into chains and captivity. And ultimately, what does it lead to? It leads to death. That is not a life. And it does ultimately lead to death. And we get this really weird verse here. Because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down. He was eaten by worms and died. You know, prior to that, it says that the crowd said, this is not a man, this is a God. Why are they saying that? Do they really like Herod? Well, no, because he's holding their food supply over their heads and they're flattering him. You ever heard this story? It's in the... Um, it's a book about a, a, a camp in Russia... Uh, so the uh, come on, so the archipelago, uh, the Gulag. So in there, um, there's a story about when Stalin gives a speech, and he finishes the speech, and everyone starts clapping. And then it becomes really apparent that nobody wants to be the first person to stop clapping, and they just keep going until finally. Someone eventually, it just becomes ridiculous after 10 or 15 minutes of a constant applause and someone stops. And that person is taken out and killed later on. <laughs> but you know, that kind of power is like, I mean, can you imagine that sycophantic flattering 
And then, and Herod is just, oh, he's consumed with his own image. He doesn't see it as just lies from people that he's controlling. He sees it as truth about himself. It's building up to him. And he sets himself up. I am the top. I am the king. And at that moment, he discovers that he is not. He is not immortal. And the great thing is Josephus, who is a Jewish historian, tells the exact same story. He doesn't talk about uh, all the aspects to it, but he does say that Herod was on a visit to this particular place. It's an independent account, separate from Acts, by a Jewish historian, not a Christian. And that Herod... uh, was in this area and he was presenting a talk and he was hit by this excruciating pain, lasted for five days and then he died. Interesting. So why eaten by worms? I just have to say a little bit about this because it's weird. And I was like, why can't that have to be in there? This is such a perfect little story, but the eaten by worms, but oh, I'm gonna explain this away. I don't think I need to. You know euphemisms like bought the farm, pushing up daisies, kicked the bucket. Is there any more in America for dying? It's depressing, I know, but we laugh at death because it's so scary. Is that all the ones? Come on, someone. Bought the farm. Yeah, any more? What was that? Taking a dirt nap. That's really, whoa. Okay, well, apparently the scholars and bigwigs say that to be eaten by worms was a fairly traditional term for the death of a tyrant, that, that someone who was a tyrannical person, eaten by worms is a way of talking about their death, that it was a horrific thing, that there was just a disturbing element to it, um, and it was some form of a curse, that they deserved this. This was, this was some form of providential end, is what they're saying. So what about us? What is our part in this world this system, this kingdom of the world. I think we have a tendency to need to control things. We may not be at the level of a king who can actually take people's lives, but I think we feel it in our hearts often that we want to rid ourselves of that which stands in our way of getting which, that which we want. Or it leads to a, a sense that we're solely responsible for making our way in the world. If I don't do it, no one will. I was raised with that expectation that you will do it. You be self-made man. Son, I look at a big mess I made of that back in the day, man, but at least a willingness to cut corners. Um, the end justifies the means. I'm gonna get to there and there'll be some stuff I'll have to do. We damage people along the way. Me first in the gimme gimmies. So, need to control. What about sight? I was thinking about this. I was thinking about sight being the opposite of faith. And that's kind of how the, I was having this this week. And then I realized, actually, the opposite of faith is not really sight. It's actually fear. It's fear. We are fearful. That's the problem. It's a, it's a, it's a world of fear. Either perpetuating the sense of fear that others may have for us, that we have a sense of elevation that they look towards, maybe it controls them, or our fear of what other people think about us. We're trapped. Herod was trapped in a world of fear. I wish someone could have just taken Herod aside and said, hey, put something more comfortable on, take your royal robes off, and just sat down and said, dude, aren't you just tired of being afraid? You've done a lot of harm to people. You've probably got a number on your back, man, a target on your back. Fear. So let's get to the good news, shall we? 
kingdom number two. Who is the king of the kingdom is Jesus. And, and the thing is amazing as well, talking about the yeast coming through the, the batch of, and, and making, spreading into all of the dough, right? And the kingdom of the world is just very forceful. It's very present. There it is, doing things, being full of activity and power. The king of the kingdom, whose king is Jesus, doesn't really appear much. He appears through the people in whom he dwells, right? The church, and it's just kind of there, it's gentle, it's quiet, but it's still getting things done but in a different way. It gets things done through prayer and through faith. So what about the power of prayer and the power of faith? I just, it so sticks out to me. I just love when a text has something that's repeated. It talks about all the things that Herod had done, and then in verses five and 12, so Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. That's their response, not, you know, try and smuggle a file in a cake, you know, a first century file cake, or get a shabby truck and try to pull the bars off the windows, right? Oh, all they were doing was praying, you know? Man, thoughts and prayers, some good that is. We get that accusation a lot. And it's from people who don't understand the second kingdom. They understand the first kingdom. You always have to do something. And it's true, we do have to do something. But the single greatest thing we initially can do is to stop and fall to our knees and call out to the one who has the power, who is the king of all kingdoms. In the house of Mary, mother of John, where many people had gathered and were praying, the church was earnestly praying to God. And they didn't have to lift a finger because God did it. So faith, wow, wonderful, isn't it? Their faith was so strong that they, we just need to pray and God will release Peter from prison. It's going to be amazing. Well, here's the thing. Faith is a really difficult. And this shows how difficult it is. And I love that he didn't clean the story up to make the disciples look really good. They never clean the story up. The disciples rarely look good. And I'm one too, and I really appreciate that. So what do they do? <laughs> It's a journey of faith, and these people are on this journey. Sight is so much easier than faith, isn't it? Just to see. So here's the thing. Consequently, the people of God often seem confused. They often seem like they're not as dynamic or as powerful getting things done as the people who live in the kingdom of the world. And it shows it here. Peter doesn't believe what's happening to him is happening to him. He thinks it's a vision. Peter, this rock, this, I will build my church on you. And the angel comes, and he's like... He doesn't believe it. And then it dawns on him. He's like, oh my goodness. Then he goes to the house of his friends who are praying with faith that Peter would be released. And he knocks on the door. And Rona, I mean Rhoda, I want to say, my wife's name is Rona. And every time I read that, I was like, oh, almost. So, but I just love it. It's a little joke, you know? He's knocking at the door. She hears the voice, goes, forget, doesn't even open the door. An angel came and opened all the prison doors and all the chains. And this little girl can't even open a simple wooden door with a handle for Peter, right? This is this, the level of faith of these people, these great disciples of Jesus, so filled with faith and power. They're doofuses, right? <laughs> and so are we. The praying believers, they told her, you're out of your mind. Oh, Lord, please release Peter. He's here. Shh. Lord, please release Peter. Shh. Lord, please. Shh. 
you're, you're crazy, right? And then she keeps insisting, and they say it must be his angel. Basically, that means that he's, we think he's dead. It must be kind of ghost kind of situation. There was a lot of belief in that, that people after death could appear in kind of some kind of form, right? So they're like, that's the more likely explanation. Isn't that funny how we go, well, more likely that it's just kind of a ghost rather than Peter. Um, but Peter keeps on knocking. He's very patient. He's like, he's probably thinking that. An angel broke me out of prison, and my own friends won't even let me in the door. They should have had one of those little cameras on the door. They would have seen, oh, it is Peter. Um, but when they opened the door, they were astonished. No way. You ever get that when you pray for something fervently, earnestly, and then it happens, and you're just like, wow. You're totally shocked. Like, how could that possibly have happened? Right? It's just us, man. We're little of, little of faith, right? So here's, here's some application. Why else do this? It's this... Uh, it's a time of penance, so I'm wearing a, 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 like a camel hair shirt underneath my shirt to like punish myself for all my sins. That's what's rub, rubbing against there. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, George. I don't know what I do here. Okay, here's the thing. Faith. Um, which, which one would you rather be part of? One where you have to control every, try and control everything? One where you have to appear to be, at least know what you're doing, be smart. Or, or one of humility, of where you have grace and community. These people had community. They were doofuses together. Um, but they had a king who was working in the midst of them, accomplishing his goals in and through them, regardless of their failure, their inability, their lack of wisdom, their lack of credibility. They surrendered to him every day, and they were not isolated. Community, the first kingdom isolates us. It makes everyone, everyone is a competitor in the, in the kingdom of the world. Everyone is your competitor. You either make them that or they're making that or both of you are, whether it's on the freeways, for jobs, for parking spaces, for whatever, you're in competition with everybody else. They are not your friend. They are out to get you and you better get them first. The second brings us into community where we all contribute to one another's well-being because our king says, consider others better than yourself. Oh, in humility. It's hard, isn't it? And then we have a king who is above all, who is above all, Lord of lords, king of kings, sovereign over all. Andrew Murray writes about this God. God is ready to assume full responsibility for the life wholly yielded to him. God is willing to take full responsibility for your life. So what's the outcome? If the first one is captivity and death, clearly in this, the second kingdom brings freedom and flourishing. I love that word, flourishing. It's like people who are good at doing calligraphy, there's a flourish to their writing, right? It's just like, it's carefree, it's joyful, it's creative. <clears throat> Herod passes from the scene but Luke, by his very next assertion after Herod's death, makes something crystal clear. He says, but the word of God continued to spread and flourish. Definition of flourishing, developing rapidly and successfully thriving. As Melody put it last week, it's going viral. And Luke says, this is the way to go. This is the kingdom to be part of. This is the way to prosper, to move forward, to experience life 
as opposed to right before Herod died. He did not give praise to God and he was, he was gone. So how did it spread and flourish? It spread and flourished through the people. That's the word. The word spreads and flourishes through people, through us. This story is full of growth, life, connections being made, new boundaries being torn down as God builds a people for his kingdom who live according to completely radically different rules to those which they had become accustomed to and had worked for them for many years but never really worked at all, really. Herod had, made the, Herod had the power to arrest and imprison Peter and to kill James, but only as he was allowed and King Jesus overruled that decision and set him free. I just want to say a bit about miracles because I, and I, I believe the miraculous is possible, but the very definition of it being miraculous means it's, it's possibly rare, right? A miracle's not something. If miracles happened every single day, they would no longer be miracles, Right? Interestingly enough, there's only 16 miracles in the Acts, and this is over a 30-year period. Let's give you some perspective. 30 years, 16 miracles written down. And I think they would note these things. I mean, oh, there's tons of miracles last week, but let's not write them down, right? Um, so we say, don't see miracles? Well, this kingdom does bring miracles. What about a changed heart? What about a former addict set free who's just broken from captivity, what about an angry, violent person finding peace with himself and with others and contributing to society? What about the reconciliation of former enemies? What about when, for example, in South Africa, after apartheid, when Desmond Tutu led people into a time of reconciliation? I know it's not perfect, but there was some amazing things happened there where people, former enemies, Rwanda, same thing, Northern Ireland even, when there's a gospel kingdom peace that is brokered between people who are formerly Terrible enemies. So the basic choice here is to who will be king. That's the choice. Uh, the way of life and the, the picture that Herod paints for us of this kingdom of the world is ultimately who we could choose to be. And there aren't that many kings in that world. You know that? Not everyone gets to be king, right? What are the rest of us? Slaves, serfs, supporters of the king. Yeah, I think so. Or you could take him out, right? Be the king yourself. Jesus said this, what will it profit a man or a woman if he or she gains the whole world and loses his or her own soul? Or clearer, why would people gain the whole world but lose their lives? So who will be king? Who will be king? Is it me Will I be king or will Jesus be king? Do I seek to control, to manipulate, to get what I can and keep a tight hold of it? Do I relish the praise of other people and fight to protect my image of myself? Or do I release my rule over my own life and surrender to the only one who has ever been sufficient in power and love and righteousness and truth to be the true king? This is, this is how we decide what kind of contact we have with the kingdom of God, with the king. And this is just really, I find this very interesting, that both characters, Peter and Herod, experienced some encounter with the kingdom of God, like a point of contact. An angel of the Lord comes into their life. And they're described in exactly the same way, with exactly the same words, but with radically different outcomes. For Peter, suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side. 
and woke him up and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. He struck Peter and this happened. Compare with immediately, suddenly, immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God. An angel of the Lord struck him, Herod, and he was dead. The action, same, fast, suddenly, they were both struck. It's exactly the same word. I was like really shocked to discover that. Like, they were both struck. It's not a gentle war, but in the striking, Peter is released to life to serve the true king. And Herod, who set himself up in the place of the king, is, is his life has ended. It's like a point of contact. This kind of determines how you want to connect with, with the kingdom of God. Will you make it your enemy? Or will you let yourself, I mean, tell you, following Jesus, I have said, is, can be very hard. Sometimes it feels like you are being struck, but you're being struck in a way which is perfectly measured to change us, to grow us in patience and grace and trust in God. So I'm gonna ask the worship team to come up because we've got one other person to talk about. What about James? James got killed, right? Doesn't sound very victorious, an overcomer. But here's the thing. James was not struck by God. James was struck by Herod. And, and kings in this world do terrible things to people. James was in Herod's way to where Herod wanted to get, and he needed to go. So does that end the rule of the kingdom over James's life? What about freedom for James? Jesus said, the person that believes in me, even if they die, yet they will live. Even death cannot end our connection <clears throat> with this kingdom. This is an eternal kingdom. And those who are part of this kingdom, <clears throat> though they be beaten, cannot be shaken. It's an unshakable kingdom and an unshakable king. And you once offer your life to him, he will never let go of you. Not even through death can separate you from your king. Or we can set ourselves up as king, take our chances in this world of kingly competition. The kingdom of the world, you are the king. The kingdom of God, Jesus is our king. And here's the thing about Jesus. Jesus is the only king who sets aside his crown for the least important, smallest, suffering, marginalized, weakest member of the kingdom and taking them by the hand leads them to a place of highest honor. Jesus is the only king that will do that. No matter who you are, no matter how lowly you are, he esteems you highly and he calls you to be, to rule with him, to reign with him in his kingdom. Or we choose to be king ourselves and I would not want to put myself up against him. As someone once said to me, my arms are too short to box with God and I'm certainly too short to be a king as opposed to him. Let's pray. And then we'll respond in song. Oh, Lord Jesus, our King. You're King whether we choose to name you that or not. And your word says that one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. Humble our foolish, prideful hearts. 
We thank you for the trials that we face that remind us again that we are not in control, but we can put our trust in the one who ultimately is, was, ever shall be In the strong name of Jesus, our King and Savior.